Hello again, and welcome back to The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind by William Kamkwamba and Brian Mueller. We're going to continue reading Chapter 5, titled Malawi Begins to Starve. During these hard times, everyone learned the lesson of supply and demand. The rule of economics says that whenever the supply of something is great, say that farmers have a good crop like a normal year, the demand will be low and so will the price. But when it's the opposite, when the supply is low, like it was during the famine, the demand is overwhelming and the prices soar into the heavens. Ever since the country ran out of maize, businessmen have been traveling into neighboring countries like Tanzania and buying it by the truckful. Back in Wimby Market, they raised the price, partly because gasoline was expensive and sometimes the trucks broke down, but also they charged more because they knew people were starving and would pay anything to stay alive. Luckily, one of the traders, Mr. Mengochi, was my father's friend and agreed to cut us a deal. For the money my mother earned selling cakes, Mangochi sold her another pail of maize. My mother took it to the mill, saving half the flour for more cakes while the other half went to us. It was just enough to provide our blob of encima each night, plus some pumpkin or mustard leaves as relish. It didn't erase our hunger, but knowing our mule was safe made it seem less painful. As long as we can stay in business, we can make it through, my father told us. Our profit is that we stay alive. A couple of weeks later, my mother was coming home from the market when a giant truck passed her on the road. Its load was covered with tarps, and some of the other traders said it was maize. They're taking it to the government store in Chamama, someone told her. When my mother got home, she called me over and explained the news. You will go to Chamama tomorrow. Leave as early as possible. Chamama was 12 miles away, so of course I grumbled. Are you sure it was maize and not fertilizer? Because I heard that. Are you listening to me, boy? The mother, My mother snapped. She did not like her children talking back, especially not now. You go tomorrow. If my mother was right, it was great news. It meant the government had found surplus maize, perhaps from Tanzania, and would sell it for a discount. With prices climbing higher and higher in the market, it was the only way we could get ahead. The next morning, I woke at 5 a.m. and set off on my bicycle for Chimama. An empty flour sack fluttered from my handlebars as I rattled down the narrow dirt roads. I noticed many others were carrying the same. Chimama? I asked them. Eh, they replied, nodding. The government store was located in the central market. When I finally arrived, I saw the lines of people stretched from the door all the way down the road, longer than two soccer fields. Our One line was for men, while the other was for women and children. Each was getting longer by the minute, so I parked my bike against a fence and took my place among the men. A cool breeze blew from the lake and kept people in good spirits. But once the scorching sun rose in the sky, the hunger revealed itself in everyone. People suddenly appeared exhausted, as if they hadn't slept in days. 
the skin around their faces was shrunken and their eyes squinted against the hard light. It had probably been weeks since many had eaten a proper meal, and the government store was their last and only hope of survival. As the sun rose hotter, they grew more and more feeble. The man in front of me could hardly stay awake. His hands were trembling as if he were cold, and his breathing was heavy and loud. When the lines started to move, he couldn't keep his balance and fell down. To my horror, no one helped him up, just simply stepped over him. In the next line, babies cried from hunger, and the children tugged at their mother's dresses. If there's one thing I'll remember most about that day in Chamama, it's the sound of crying babies. After several hours in line, people got restless and angry. Angry at the sun and at people pressed all around whose starvation reeked of sour rags. Angry at the government, at the dust, and at the very air that occupied the emptiness of their stomachs. As we inched closer and closer to the door, their impatience took control. People began to push. Someone shoved me so hard in the back that I grabbed hold of the man in front of me to keep from falling down. A few boys from the end of the line then raced toward the front, squirming into the crowd like mice under a door. Hey, stop cutting, people shouted. We've been here since dawn. But they kept coming. Everyone knew that at some point the grain would run out and no one wanted to be the loser left holding an empty sack. The more people cut in line, the more others panicked. Suddenly, both lines surged surged toward the front doors at once. The wave of bodies lifted me off the ground and carried me forward. I felt like the air being squeezed out of my lungs and saw the sky disappear above me. I was being swallowed by this enormous, terrifying mob, and I was helpless against it. Hey, stop, I shouted. I can't breathe, but it was no use. As the mob trapped me in its belly, a strange thing happened. Everything went dark. The screams and moaning of children fell away. The shouting vanished. I drifted in slow motion as if underwater. For a second, I thought that maybe I was already dead and a small part of me even felt relieved. But no, the cracks in the crowd. I saw the government building now closer than ever. The crowd had carried me forward like a cyclone. I managed to plant my feet back on the ground and slither between the bodies. It helped being skinny. A minute later, I reached the front of the pack and stood on the porch of the building. Then I slipped through the doors. Inside, the office was cool and quiet, and in front of me was a hill of maize as high as my waist. It was more food than I had seen in months, and I had made it just in time. Outside, the mob had exploded into one giant fist fight. Through the door, I watched a woman fall to the ground and vanish in the dust cloud. Two more women were carrying babies on their backs and jumped out of the ruckus to avoid being crushed. Losing their place in line, they brushed off their clothes and walked away with nothing. I wondered if they'd make it through another month. Hey, a man shouted, next. He was shouting at me. I said, next. I hurried forward and placed my order. I had 400 kwachi in my pocket, enough to buy 25 kilograms as advertised on the sign outside. 
But when I told him what I wanted, he informed me there had been a change. I could only purchase 20, but the price remained the same. So how much do you want? He said, not even looking up from his ledger. 20. He gave me a ticket and pointed down the line where several workers used metal pails to scoop the maize. They had looked muscular and healthy, nothing like the people outside. The man who measured my maize then cheated me. He threw the bucket onto the scale so quickly that I couldn't see the weight, then he emptied it into my bag. Next, he screamed, but wait, you didn't even... He wheeled around. If you don't like it, you can leave it here. There are plenty of people behind you. Next! With little choice, I handed him my money, grabbed my sack, and ran for the door. Despite being robbed, I felt a rush of excitement to be holding so much food, though it quickly turned to fear once I stepped back in, out into the mob. A man ran toward me shouting, I'll give you 500 for that. Another pushed him aside. No boy, I'll give you 600. I pretended not to hear. I strapped the maze to my bike as fast as I could and sped away. Once I reached the road, I didn't stop pedaling until I saw my family's house. As I rolled into the courtyard, my mothers and sisters greeted me like a hero. I was exhausted and my clothes were torn and dirty from the crowd. When I tossed the maze onto my father's scale, it confirmed that I had been shorted. Fifteen kilos, I said, only half a bag. My mother told me not to worry, you did fine, and because of you, we will eat for another week. In the days after Chamama, people started selling their possessions to stay alive. One morning during a heavy rain, I sat on the porch and watched a line of them pass like slow-moving ants. Women carried giant pots on their heads containing the items from their kitchen, cups, spoons, knives, everyday utensils of a normal life unhinged. Men lugged chairs and sofas on their back. One man dragged a heavy dining room table through the mud. They were all headed for the trading center to see how much money or maze they could get. Because what good was it a kitchen table when you had no food to eat on it? Kamba lay sprawled out on the ground at my feet. Every few seconds his tail flipped in slow motion at the flies that gathered on his back. He was getting thinner and thinner and more weak and I knew it was all my fault. My mother's one meal per day didn't include our dog. The only way Kamba ate is if I shared my portion, and most days I was so hungry that I ate it all without thinking. Lately, in the middle of the night, his groans of hunger had roused me from my sleep, and I'd stayed awake burning with guilt. It was difficult to even face him now, so once the rain let up that morning, I left him on the porch and followed the people to the trading center. He didn't try to follow. The hunger had transformed the town. Most of the shops, like Mr. Banda's, were now shuttered, and the market women had abandoned their stalls. The merchants now joined the multitude of starving people looking for food and selling their lives away. Ndiri Ndi Malanda, a man called out, I've got something to sell. How about this radio? It's yours for a giveaway price. One man sold the iron sheets from his roof for a cup of flour. A nice straw roof could fetch half a cup. What good is a roof when you're dead, he asked. A few of the businessmen, like Mr. Mangochi, 
bought their neighbor's furniture and later gave it back. But the truth was that most people had no money to buy anything. They simply shook their heads and walked away. Inside the maize mill, a crowd of desperate children gathered around the machine. When the rare woman came to grind a pail of maize, they watched the flower cloud rise from the bucket with dancing eyes. As soon as the customer removed the pail from the spout, the children threw themselves onto the floor and wiped it clean. By mid-December, there was hardly any grain to mill anymore, and the building fell to silence. Then Christmas arrived. Normally, it was my favorite holiday. In better times, we put on our nicest clothes on Christmas Eve and watched the nativity play at church. Later that night, my sisters and I would catch swarms of flying ants that arrived each rainy season, then roast them in a flat pan with salt and eat them with encima. Whereas grasshoppers have a kind of nutty flavor, roasted ants taste like chewy dried onions, except more delicious. When eaten along with beans and pumpkin leaves, they are truly heavenly. Christmas morning breakfast was typically fresh, sliced bread slithered with blue brand margarine and a mug of steaming chombi tea, a blue band sandwich washed down with milky sugary tea is the greatest combination you can put inside your mouth. Like anyone, Malawians love meat on Christmas. Early in the afternoon, my father usually kills one of our biggest chickens and gives it to my mother to cook. But Christmas chicken is not served with encima. As I mentioned before, it comes with rice. Ask any Malawan about Christmas dinner and they'll always mention rice. But on Christmas 2001, we had none of this stuff. First of all, our chickens had died from disease a few weeks earlier because we couldn't afford the medicine. All that remained was one lonely hen who became a kind of morose symbol of everything we'd lost. No one dared touch her. All the churches canceled their Christmas Eve nativity ceremonies because of the hunger, and that night my sisters and I felt so weak anyway we didn't bother catching ants. When Christmas morning rolled around, there was no sliced bread or blue band, no tea, and I knew there wouldn't be any chicken and rice either. I felt so sad that I sat on the edge of my bed and didn't move. I heard the sounds of radio coming through my door. The DJ was playing Silent Night, and it only made me angry. How dare they play that song, I thought. I grabbed my hoe and headed straight for the fields, anything to keep my mind off Christmas. Around noon, my mother did manage to serve us a holiday lunch, but it was just the usual blob of Sima. She had probably worked very hard to save enough flour for that extra meal, but it was possible to eat with a happy heart. Afterward, I went to see Jeffrey, which made me feel even worse. I found him sitting on his bed, looking thin and tired. Ever since his mother had ran out of food the previous month, Jeffrey had been one of the people on the road searching for Ganyu. He found work making ridges and pulling weeds, but it didn't provide enough food for his whole family. And often they went entire days without eating. Worse, he'd been neglecting his maize crop. Oh, man, I said, I haven't seen you in days. Your field is full of weeds. They're taking over. Too busy with Ganyu, he said. 
At first, I went looking for enough food for the month, then the week. Now, it's all about tomorrow and today. I hadn't seen Gilbert in a while, so I walked over to his house. About 50 people were camped out in his yard when I arrived, and the smoke from their fires covered the place in a dismal haze. Gilbert was standing in the doorway. Merry Christmas, eh? I said, being sarcastic. Not here, he answered. Well, surely Chief Wimby has prepared some delicious chicken and rice? Gilbert shook his head in disappointment. These people have taken almost everything for us. It's only beans and sema today. My nose caught something terrible on the breeze. It made my lips curl. What is that? I asked. Oh, he said, pointing toward the campers. They're not even bothering with the latrine anymore. Now they're just defecating in our grass. Be careful where you walk. Yeah, for sure. With Jeffrey business with busy with Ganyu and Gilbert busy with hungry people, I decided to see if my cousin Charity was around. Charity was a few years older. His parents lived in another village while he worked the fields around Wimby. He lived by himself in a kind of cool clubhouse where teenage boys gathered to discuss soccer, girls, and whatever else. I never really knew since most of the time they kicked me out. Whenever one of them said, William, I think I hear your mother calling, I knew it was my signal to leave. This time, though, Charity seemed happy to see me. No one wants to be alone on the holidays. He invited me inside where a small fire was burning in a cooking pot. It's Christmas and I'm starving, he said. I haven't eaten a thing. Yeah, I said, I'm hungry too. The two of us began thinking of ways to get food. The mangoes were all eaten and gone, and the businessmen in the trading center wouldn't dare give us any flour. What about James, I said. Our friend James ran a kind of Kenya stand, but instead of selling fried goat meat, he boiled the brains and hooves, something called head cheese. Trust me, it's more delicious than it sounds. In fact, my mouth watered just thinking about it. Perhaps James will be generous on Christmas and let us have some, I said, feeling confident. Charity waved me off. Don't be stupid. Then his eyes brightened, he said, but he does throw away the skins. Can you eat that? I asked, twisting my face. I'm thinking, why not? What's the difference? It's all meat, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. The hunger had screwed up our brains. On the way to see James, we passed the other Kenyanye stands, a group of Wealthy businessmen stood around eating meat and fried potatoes. They laughed and joked as they they devoured the greasy bits and not even stopping to swallow before stuffing their faces again. Nor did they seem to notice the crowd of villagers that gathered around just to watch them eat. To these men, the hunger was invisible. James's stand was just down the road. He was there as usual, hunching over his boiling pot. As we got closer, I could see a goat head bobbing inside the rolling water along with some leg pieces. My stomach howled and I had to turn away. Hey, James, Charity said, William and I are making a Christmas drum for the children in the village. We were wondering if you could spare one of your skins. That's a good idea, said James. He turned and nodded toward a black mound in the dirt. 
swarming with flies. Take that one there. I was going to throw it out anyway. Charity grabbed the hide and stuffed it into a jumbo bag and then handed it to me. It was still warm. It's a como quambiri, Charity said. Thanks a lot. The kids will appreciate you. Sure, sure. We hurried back to Charity's house, wasting no time. How are we supposed to prepare this? I asked, peering inside the bag. Easy, said Charity. We'll just cook it like a pig. Back inside, I added some tweaks to the fire and got it going again. Again, once it was good and hot, Charity and I held the corners of the hide and stretched it over the flames. The hair sizzled and flared and gave off an awful smell. Once it looked charred enough, we took our knives and scraped it away. We did this again and again until it was properly cleaned. We cut the skin into strips and threw them into a pot of boiling water, adding a little salt and baking soda. What's the soda for? I asked. It's how the women make their beans cook faster, he answered. I'm thinking it works with skin, too. After three hours, a thick white foam formed on top of the water. Charity took out his knife and fished through the froth, pulling out a steaming piece. It was gray and slimy. He blew on it to cool it down, then plopped it into his mouth. His jaws worked and worked, trying to chew it up. Finally, he swallowed. How was it, I asked. A little tough, but we're out of firewood, so let's eat. I snagged a long piece of skin with my knife and held it in my fingers. It was sticky as if covered with scalding glue. I stuffed it in my mouth and breathed in, feeling the rush of heat instantly calm my angry belly as I chewed. The juices sealed my lips shut. Merry Christmas, I managed to say. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Just then I heard a clawing at the door and realized it was Kamba. He must have smelled the Christmas meat all the way from home and came running. His bony, bony frame was bent and tired, but his tail was wagging. I was glad to see him. Give some to that dog, Charity called out. It's dog food we're eating anyway. I bent down and rubbed Kamba's head. Let's get you something to eat, chap. I'm sure you're starving. I tossed Kamba a long piece of skin, and to my surprise, he leaped up and snatched it from the air just like old times. I went to the pot and pulled out two more giant handfuls. After he finished his meal, the life seemed to return to his body. I lost count of how many pieces I ate myself, but after about a half hour of chewing, Charity and I gave up because our jaws were too tired. As the sun went down that afternoon, the three of us sat around the cold fire, content with the warm feeling of meat in our stomachs, because that's what Christmas was all about anyway.